Well, for over two decades, Tim Schroeder has been a friend of Southridge. Mike and I met him early on in our ministry lives at a pastor's event in Chicago. I've served with Tim over a number of years on the board of the Global Leadership Network Canada. And Tim and I had the chance to travel Europe for 10 days about a decade ago and coach pastors together on a trip that our wives joined in. And so over the years, we've become good friends as well. Lately, though, if you heard through the podcast Tim and I did a few weeks ago, you know that he's not just a friend of Southridge these days. Through the pandemic, he and Arlene have become followers of Southridge as they've been tracking with our online message series. And so taking in his heart for God and the Bible and the church and the fact that he's tracking with us anyways, we thought, why don't you make a contribution to one of these series? And Tim was willing to do that. He served for over three decades at uh, Trinity Baptist Church in Kelowna, BC. On top of that, he was uh, chaplain for a number of years of the Kelowna Rockets, the local hockey team, and uh, continues to be a chaplain for the RCMP. Uh, you'll have to forgive Tim because as an Alberta boy, he's more a fan of Connor McDavid than Austin Matthews, but we practice love beyond belief in our community, and at the very least, we can gain some common ground cheering for Canada's team when it comes to baseball. This is a shot of Tim and Arlene at a ball game with Becky and I uh, a number of years ago. So uh, I'm really excited to have Tim share with us in this section of the book of Exodus as we continue learning liberation together. Let's all open our hearts for what Tim Schroeder has to say to us today. Well, good morning, Southridge. You know, while you're embracing this worship experience there, it's seven o'clock in the morning here in sunny Kelowna. Uh, what an interesting time for a church service. But I'll have a deal with you. I'll do my best to stay awake and you do your part as well. Uh, one quick thought before we dig into today's text. I just want to make a comment on your church. If you're new to Southridge and maybe haven't had much other church experience, or if you've been part of Southridge long enough that you have forgotten what some other church experiences can be like, I just want to encourage you, don't take what you have there for granted. You know what, being part of a sensitive, grace-oriented, prevailing church that worships God, enjoys community, and engages in meaningful anchor causes, that's something that not every Canadian Christian ever gets to experience in their whole life. So let me just encourage you, embrace it, nurture it, be grateful for it, and do everything you can in your power to extend this rare privilege. All right, with that as background, let's get going. Here's the underlying big idea that I want to say to you today based on our journey through Exodus. Some experiences are designed to influence the way all subsequent experiences are viewed. And how often have you experienced something that afterward caused you to say, man, I'll never look at blank the same way again. That experience has changed my whole outlook. I, I had one of those moments when I was uh, just starting out as a young pastor. And given my current hair color, you can assume that was some time ago. I was attending some denominational meetings at our head office, which happened to be in Chicago. It was my first time to visit a really big city, 
And after the meetings, I decided to venture downtown to Wrigley Field to catch a Cubbies game. I managed to find my way to Wrigley Field, got in line to buy a ticket, when I noticed a 70-something-year-old lady looking at me rather strangely. And I wasn't just imagining things because after a minute or two of that, she came right up to me and she said, hey, son, are you buying just one ticket to the game? It seemed like a strange question, but I said, yeah. At which she said, tell you what, I'll sell you one. And it's way better than anything you'll ever get from them. Man, I, I was from a small town, Western Canada. I'd heard about scalpers and getting scammed and arrested. And I just didn't have a clue what to do. And she could tell that I was pretty uneasy. She said to me, ah, don't worry, Sonny. You just come in and sit with me. It'll be okay. Betty was her name. And she was true to her word. Second row, right behind the Cubby's dugout. Everyone in the section knew her. They, they greeted Betty with a hug and a kiss. It turns out that Betty and her husband had been season ticket holders for decades, but the year prior, he had died. And now Betty looked for one person to buy the extra ticket to every game. It was a horrible baseball game. Cubbies were getting killed. So about the sixth inning or so, the conversation changed from baseball to the kinds of people Betty was always bringing to the ballpark. Betty, said the young lawyer who sat right in front of us and who by that point was on his sixth or seventh or eighth beer, he said, usually you bring nice people to the games. It's great, it's interesting. But that time you brought a Methodist minister. So that ruined the whole game for me. I, I couldn't swear. He looked judgmentally at me every beer I ordered. Betty, don't ever do that again. I want you to bring nice, normal people like Tim here. <laughs> I got to confess that if at that point they would have asked my occupation, I would have lied. Nice, normal people? You know, that conversation was more than 35 years ago, and it remains vividly in my mind to this day. And it has impacted almost everything about the way I view being a preacher and how I strive to be normal. Some experiences are designed to influence the way all subsequent experiences are viewed. Today's Bible account from Exodus 16 is one of those moments. What Israel learned, or at least should have learned from this experience, is of such consequence that its impact was felt for generations. And in fact, I suggest is still felt today. The experience described in this story exposes no less than four perspective-altering principles, each one demanding significant internal wrestling. And so I just apologize in advance, because if in this teaching moment I do my job and explain the text well, and if God chooses through the Holy Spirit to nudge you personally, and you can probably expect to have some pretty tough things to wrestle with in your processing moments this coming week. Four perspective-altering principles, two of which are about us and our natural tendencies. One is about God and how God often acts. And one principle just is. It's an observation about life. 
So I'm going to put all four of them out in the open, put all four of them out on the top of the table, and let you wrestle with them in your own personal space. Here's number one. The first thing to go in hard times is perspective. And it can go in an incredibly short period of time. Exodus 16 verse 1 tells us that Israel was only about six weeks or so into the journey. Fifteenth day of the second month since they left Egypt. Forty-five days. Now, Now keep in mind that they'd been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Now they've been out for 45 days. Verse 2 of that text, we read that the whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. And the Israelites said to them, Oh, how we wish that the Lord had put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots, cooking meat, and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Oh, for the good old days in slavery in Egypt. Really? How quickly they forgot. They forgot how the Egyptians looked at them with disgust and dread and made their lives absolutely miserable, forced them to do all kinds of cruel work. Oh, for the good old days? They forgot that every baby boy who was born was to be killed. They they forgot that that things were so bad that that the Lord said, this is in in chapter 3, he says, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them. Historians suggest that 45 days into the journey to freedom, they were just starting to run out of supplies. And with incredible speed, that hardship distorted their perspective of how things used to be to the point that they longed to go back to slavery. Only happens to Israel in the desert, right? Our current reality and our season of hardship here in COVID, and that's doing a number on perspective for many of us. Each time I I hear people longing for the good old days and and things to get back to the pre-COVID era, I, I think to myself, it's funny, I don't seem to recall everyone celebrating a perfect life 14 months ago. And I don't mean at all to trivialize the current hardship. This is a hard season with consequences that are just hurtful for so many. In fact, to be fair, this is the most difficult season most of us have ever experienced. But it raises quite a question, doesn't it? What's it done to my perspective and yours? How has it impacted your view of God and history and provision and faith? These are the kinds of questions worth wrestling through. Well, that's number one. First thing to go in hard times is perspective. The second principle is even more challenging. The first tendency in good times is to hoard. God heard their complaining. and In fact, one scholar calls this section the murmuring motif. 
And, and he analyzes the various Hebrew forms of, of the word grumble or complain and finds it seven times in just five verses. And yet, incredibly, in the face of all of their grumbling, God doesn't get ticked off. He hears their complaints and responds to them. And then it gets really interesting. See, Israel's given some specific instructions about how God will provide. Manna's going to be provided. There's a fascinating play on words here because no one really knows what manna is or what the word means. One suggested translation is that it's the what's-its-name, but God provides it along with some quail and the accompanying instruction that they were to only gather enough for each day. This is a lesson on trust. This is a lesson about the faithfulness of God. Only enough for each day. And some of them just could not help themselves. Man, if there's bread, we're going to get all we can. If there's toilet paper, gosh, we're going to store up. You see, the first tendency in at least some of us is that in good times, we hoard. And in doing so, we violate one of the most basic of all biblical principles, which is that we are blessed to be a blessing. And on this topic, have you ever noticed that hoarding rarely ends well? In Exodus, those who, who tried to collect more, well, by the next morning, the text says it was full of worms and mold and it stank. Later in the New Testament, Jesus said we should resist the temptation to store up for ourselves stuff where moths get it and rust and thieves break in and steal it. it it's just bad practice to hoard. Folks, the, the Bible's not against saving for emergencies and planning for retirement. That, that's not what this text is about. It's about selfishness and holding things tightly for our own benefit rather than living lives of trust and generosity. I did my undergrad work at the University of Alberta, and one of my first wake-up calls to this concept of hoarding occurred in the library. I went to take out some books for an assigned paper, and the section was almost bare. So I went to the librarian and asked for some help, and she said, hey, did you look around in the adjacent three or four stacks of books and look behind some of the other books to see if they're there? I said, like, no. Like, why would they be there? Why would they not be where they're supposed to be? She said, because the first students who come in to take out books for an assignment often take out the books they want, and then they take all the rest of the books on the assignment and hide them so that no one else can use them. You see, the U of A at that time graded on the Stainine system. It was a harsh curve, so grades were highly competitive. And if you got your books first, it not only helped you, but if you could hide the books so the rest of the other students did poorly, it was to your advantage. Ouch. I never experienced something like that. It's all about me. All about how much I can get and keep for myself. I've often thought about those evil classmates back then, and how, of course, I would never do anything like that. And then it came time to maneuver to see how I could get to the front of the line for a vaccine. Because, <laughs> of course, it's all about me rather than community and helping the most vulnerable. And a very ugly tendency got exposed in me. 
This is quite a text that peels back the layers of human nature. Our problems with perspective in hard times and, and our uncanny ability to put self-interest before others in good times. Man, am I the only one who needs to wrestle with this kind of stuff? There's a third principle in this story, and this one is about God. God's provision is often in the moment, not in advance, which of course means that it requires perpetual, ongoing trust. In verse 4 of our text, we read that the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to make bread rain down from the sky for you, and the people will go out each day and gather just enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them to see whether or not they follow my instructions. Each day. So subsequent verses say, every morning, and you take just enough for that day. And then, of course, in a teaching which could merit another whole weekend, on the sixth day, they were to collect double because Sabbath and rest and worship was to be another important part of their rhythm that God was trying to teach them. I hope this text about collecting manna each day sounds familiar to you. You see, this account of the Exodus is not just ancient history. As Michael pointed out earlier in the series, it's, it's a powerful foreshadowing of the person of Jesus and the linkage between Older Testament narrative and Newer Testament accounts. See, in Exodus, God says, I'll, I'll provide the manna, I'll provide the bread each day. You can trust me for your daily provision. And then centuries later, Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. Remember it? You all learned this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. To teach us what, what you taught Israel back in the desert, which is to live in the moment with you, trusting you every day, not stockpiling to the exclusion of others, but living life as a daily journey with you. And then in the New Testament, it, it gets really good because Jesus takes this a step further and, and he pulls back the curtain of curtains and, and he says this after teaching them about daily bread in, in John 6, verse 35, he says, by the way, I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. Who, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the bread. I'm the manna. I'm the bread of life. I'm your provision. I'm what you need, and I'm all you need, but not just once and for all. Every single day, hour by hour. And we are led in this teaching to embrace a daily, perpetual, in-the-moment connection with Jesus, the bread of life. Sometimes my tendency is to want to stockpile even my faith, like an RRSP account, just in case I, I might need more of it someday. And God says, I, I just want you to journey with me. I want you to trust me for the bread of life each and every day.
All right, that's three principles to wrestle with. If you can handle one more, here's number four, and it just is true. Remembering God's faithfulness really matters. Remembering. I've typically missed this part of the manna story. If you start reading in verse 31, you'll read that the Israelite people called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white and tasted like honey wafers. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept safe for future generations so that they can see the food that I used to feed you in the desert when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Save an omer of it. An omer was one day's ration. It's approximately two liters or so. And Moses says to Aaron the priest, he says, even though you know, it went moldy when everybody else tried to save it, we're going to save some of this because God's asked us to, and we're saving it as a memorial. We're going to teach our children. We're going to teach our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that our God can be trusted. We're going to teach them that God is faithful. Those of you that know me personally know that I'm quite technically challenged. So some things technology does scares me a bit, and, and some of it really surprises me. But every once in a while, I just am simply amazed. For example, you all know this. My phone or, or my iPad, all on its own, will produce a picture pop-up or even a video collage titled Memories. Well, here's one that popped up a while back. The older gentleman in that picture is Peter Schroeder, age 99. He's my dad. Then there's me, Peter Timothy Schroeder. Age doesn't matter. Then there's my son, Travis Peter Schroeder. And finally, there's the smartest, cutest little baby ever born, Peter Francis Schroeder. Four generations of us. And that picture is cool enough all on its own, and I see it, and it gives me warm feelings. But you know what makes it even more special? is that the occasion on which it was taken was the day when old Pete got to meet little Pete for the first time and presented him with a Bible with his name on the outside and this inscription on the inside to Peter Francis Schroeder. This Bible is presented to you by your great-grandfather, Peter. You're part of a great tradition of faith. And my prayer is that the truth contained in this book will guide your life. When you were born, I was 97 years old. And I know the value of honoring God the way this book describes. You know what old Pete was doing? He was doing exactly what Moses said they were going to do when he said, we're going to create a memorial to our God who gave us the bread of life. Anybody getting a sense of where this is going? We need to remember. Centuries later, after teaching his followers that he was the bread of life, shortly before his death on a cross, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, I, I want you to keep doing this as a memorial of God's ultimate provision for you. Every time you eat this bread, every time you drink from this cup, something divine will be sparked inside you because you'll remember that I am the bread of life, your ultimate daily provision.
Some experiences are designed to influence the way all subsequent experiences are viewed. My prayer is that today is one of those moments for you.